want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8. It has been said that Paul's letter to the Romans is the greatest letter ever written and that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter. If you agree with that, then verses 28 through 20, excuse me, verses 28 through 39 to the end of the chapter is the greatest section of the greatest chapter in the greatest letter, in the greatest book in the world. And today, we're going to begin to give our attention to that section as we uh, focus on verse 28, Romans 8.28. One Puritan commentator calls Romans 8.28 a pillow on which to rest your weary head. And how I pray that God might make this one verse a pillow for many of you on which to rest your weary heads. Another Puritan refers to Romans 8.28 as divine medicine. And I pray that God might make this verse medicinal to heal your spiritual infirmities. It, it just it seems indisputable that Romans 8.28 is one of the most sweeping and most loved promises in the Bible. And so it is um, a pleasure and it is a privilege to now call your attention to this one verse. And um, if you're able, I'd, well, I'd like to invite you to stand and listen to God's holy medicinal word. We hear it and receive it and trust it like no other word. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. It's just one verse. I'm going to say it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Oh Lord, if you would begin to reveal by the workings of your spirit some of these all things and your divine purpose and your eternal good. There's just so much here. And I pray that uh, you might bring your healing presence and power to bear upon our souls, our minds, our lives, our histories personally. Pray that you might reveal rest and comfort and care. We ask that you would make plain to us the goodness and the greatness of your calling on our lives, on the lives of those who love you, trust you. Pray that you would fulfill your purpose among us. In Jesus' name, amen.
You may be seated. My humble attempt to put the main point of Romans 8.28 in my own words would be this. All things of every kind that happen to the Christian are overruled by God for his or her good. All things, every kind of thing, the best and the worst, that happen to a Christian, all those things are overruled. They are subjected by God for the Christian man or woman, boy, girl. It's it's subjected by God for their good. Now, more than any other promise in the Bible, this assertion from Romans 8.28 that all things, every kind of thing that happened to us are overruled by God for our good has helped Christians trust God through experiences that just seemed utterly pointless, uh, painful, evil, suffering believers groaning Christians have held fast to that all things, that every kind of thing, and have entrusted themselves to God's word and found themselves empowered to say, even this, this horrible thing, this devastating thing, this seemingly pointless thing will somehow turn out for my good. I I can still remember my junior high Sunday school teacher, Mr. McMurray, teaching us this simple rhyme. When things don't go the way they should, God always makes them turn for good. When things don't go the way they should, God always makes them turn for good. We should say that together, all right? Is that up there? Let's do that. When things don't go the way they should, God always makes them turn for good. And according to the very first phrase of Romans 8.28, this is not merely a matter of of intellectual comprehension. Um, This promise is intended to be a controlling conviction. Paul writes, and we know, we know when hard things happen, there's a whole lot of things we don't know. (laughs) We don't know why things don't always work out the way we believe they should. We don't know how all things are going to work together for our good, yet While we are hurting and suffering, we don't always know what to pray for as we ought. But we do know that in this world, there has been and there is. And until we are gathered together with the saints in Christ and glorified, there will be suffering. We know that. Romans 8.22 We know that the whole creation has been groaning together, 
verse 23, and not only creation, but we also know we ourselves groan. Doesn't require an education or some added information to come to this conclusion. Because we've lived it. At least most of us have. So Paul has no need to persuade anyone that hard and hurtful things happen to Christians. What Paul does unpack here is a fundamental, guiding, governing conviction. Something that we know. Something that we're certain of. And what is it that Christians can know with such certainty? So, when a loved one, someone dear to us, suddenly and unexpectedly dies, what do we know? When your unemployment has been terminated, what do you know? When you discover that you miscarried, what do you know? When you find out you've been betrayed, you've been lied to by somebody whom you trusted, what do you know? When that painful and that shameful episode in your past still haunts you in the present and threatens to sabotage your future. What do you know? What is it that engenders confidence and comfort in God's children in the face of the most soul-crushing hurts? Loved ones, Don't the times we live in call for certain controlling convictions in order to restrain us all from hyperventilating? And my purpose in this sermon is to point you to five guiding, governing convictions. And the first and foremost is this. God works. God is the ultimate and decisive worker in the world. And God's most particular and glorious work is accomplished in and on behalf of His people. Our English translations of Romans 8.28 differ in regard to how we understand who or what is the subject in the sentence And who's doing the working? Some translations, like the English Standard Version, which I just read, or the King James Version, they translate all things. All things is the subject that is doing the good. Other translations, like the New International Version or the New American Standard Version, translate the sentence with God as the subject who is causing all the things to work together for good. When I look at the text, I can play a trump card here and say I can read it in the original language. I see a masculine singular verb. He works. I don't see a 
neuter plural verb. Nevertheless, however we understand the precise grammar, it's really of little consequence in the long run. <laughs> because the all things in Romans 8.28, they do not work independently on their own. Nor by virtue of some you know, vague power or by chance. In each translation, it is understood, it is assumed that God is the worker. And what God is at work doing is bringing about good. And what God is, is bringing good out of is all things. Things are because God is working. According to the Bible, God is not contingent. God is ultimate. God is decisive. We aren't. Things aren't. God governs. God rules. God is over. And God works. And His hand is at work in the littlest things and the biggest things. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them, not one sparrow will, not one sparrow in the whole world will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more valued than many sparrows. So listen, God doesn't just feed the birds. He determines when every bird, every one, countless millions of them every year, He determines when every bird dies and falls to the ground. God does, not us. God alone is sovereign. God alone does all that He pleases. All things depend on God for their being. And all things are dependent on God for knowing. And therefore, even our convictions and our certainties themselves are ultimately owing to God. And it is in God and God alone that we live and move and have our being. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 33 and 36, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom, knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. To Him. Him alone be glory forever. Amen. So clearly, all things in and of themselves do not work. Nor do all things in and of themselves work for good. It's only under the sovereign guidance and governance of God that everything moves Everything's woven together into a divine tapestry that is, and this would be our second conviction, is good. God works for the good, works for the good of his people.
all things of every kind that happen to the Christian are subjected to and overruled by God for their good. Verse 28 again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What does Paul mean by good? Many have pushed back against this verse and said, Paul, you, you just have, have absolutely no idea what I've gone through. You have absolutely no idea what I've lost. The years, the innocence, the hopes, the dreams, the, the future. What good could you possibly be referring to? And the good Paul is referring to is the good he states in the next verse. So, so just follow his, his reasoning again, beginning in verse 8. And we know, it's our conviction, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. So God has a purpose, right? He has a purpose for calling us. God has an ultimate, eternal purpose in saving us. And it is a good purpose. And do you know what that good purpose is for which God has called you and drawn you to Himself? You know? Verse 29 tells us, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, this is, this is the purpose, this is the good, to be conformed to the image of his Son. God's good purpose for His chosen, redeemed, adopted sons and daughters, is that they will be conformed to the image of Christ. So listen, this is God's purpose for you if you're a Christian. And it is, it is good. The good that He means to accomplish in your life is to shape you and to mold you and to transform you and to redeem Things until you are conformed to the image of His Son. The greatest good in your life is to be increasingly more and more and more and more for all eternity, because that's how long it's going to take, to be like Jesus. The greatest good is to think like Jesus, to, to talk like Jesus, act like Jesus, walk like Jesus, love like Jesus, serve like Jesus, to be conformed to the character of Jesus. That's the good. What good outcome could possibly be greater? What higher good is there than for the glory of Jesus to be put on display in your life? <laughs> Can anything in this life be more good than to be conformed to the, the image of Jesus, our Lord Jesus, the Christ? It's our practice 
Perhaps you have done this in your missional community at some point or another to share the storyline of, of our lives by recounting the highest highs and the lowest lows. And, you know, when you, when you hear somebody talk about the lowest lows in their life, <laughs> I mean, it, it, you're on holy ground. That's a tender, tender spot. When we hear someone's story, what we're, what we're hearing in the highs and the lows is a narrative that God wrote. God wrote it in advance before any of our days began. Our, our lives as Christians are each and every one, each and every life. It's an epic poem composed by the ultimate author and finisher of our faith. He is not making this up as he goes along. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. You saw me when there was nothing to see. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. That means God wrote your story before you were. So before you were conceived, the epic poem of your life, every day of your life was already written by God and bound in His book. And the climax of that story, Christian, the end of that story is that your future and final glory is joy-filled conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And if that is not good to you, if it's not good to you to be conformed to the image of Jesus, well then... Any hard, hurtful thing is only going to be another reason for you to be bitter and resentful. In Romans 8.16, Paul writes, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided that we suffer with Him in order that, or to the end that, the ultimate purpose that, we may also be glorified with Him. That's the good. And therefore, it's our conviction. We know it. We're certain of it. That all things, things of every kind that happen to you, brother and sister, are overruled by God, subjected by God to the ultimate purpose of God for your eternal good. That good being conformity to Christ. Third conviction is that God works for the good of His people in all things. So, what is included in those all things? 
all things, everything of every kind, the biggest and the smallest, the best and the worst. Every kind of thing is overruled and subjected to God's ultimate, unshakable, and most excellent purpose of conforming us to the image of His Son. That means that all of God's... Think about this. All of God's glorious and incomparable, matchless, infinite attributes, every one of them, are working in this very moment for our good. That would include His infinite wisdom is working right now for your good. His infinite knowledge of all things is working for your good right now. His righteousness, His power, His justice, His mercy, His love, His goodness. Anything that we know is true of God in in this infinite sense is being employed at this moment for your eternal well-being and good. Verses 29 and 30. Those whom he foreknew, well, that would be yet another one of his attributes. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Because he's God and he's sovereign, he can do that. He has power to do that. Nobody else does. <laughs> he can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he pleases. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Of, of all of the good things we could imagine working together for our good, what could be greater than God asserting himself, his freedom, his greatness in our salvation? How else would we be saved? What about the person of Jesus? He's working right now for our good. Verse 34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is currently ongoing, interceding for us. So at this very moment, loved ones, Jesus is praying for you. Standing before the Father, pleading access for you to all that God is for you. He's doing that at this moment. If he didn't do that this moment, it wouldn't matter who is up here leading worship. We wouldn't get there. We would have no access. We'd be kept at a distance. How about the Holy Spirit? According to verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Do you know that the Spirit of God is at work in this very moment, helping, strengthening, revealing, empowering all the things that the Holy Spirit does on your behalf for your good? That counts as good, right? How about the Bible? This is good. 
is a good thing. According to Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. This book is, is God's instrumental means to beget spiritual life. Good happens when you open this book and read it every time. We could also say that there are, because this is what the Bible says, there are angels appointed for each one to minister to you, to serve you, to protect you. That would be good. Then there's then there's this gathering, this church, the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ who love you, they pray for you, they encourage you, they exhort you, they make sacrifices for you, they lead you. It goes, that would be good. It goes without saying that there are some pretty significant things, excellent things that God causes, directs, commands, asserts, utilizes for your eternal well-being and becoming more like Jesus. And it's going on now. But not, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good things. But you know what? He, God also overrules and brings into subjection all of the worst things. And utilizes them for our good the fulfillment of his good purpose. Verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? That would go in the worst things column. Or distress? It's the worst things column. Persecution? Famine, like there's no food, nakedness, you don't, have, you don't have the means like some kids in Bolivia to even put clothes on because they don't have any, danger, sword. What could be worse than those things? And yet, each of them... This is remarkable to think about. Each of those things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, going, you know, not having enough to eat, nakedness, danger, sword, th- those were each so essential in the glorious personhood of Jesus Christ. Who would he have been without that? And so how could we possibly experience the fulfillment of God's ultimate good purpose? Namely, our conformity to Christ. Our joyful conformity to the glories of Jesus. Apart from the same formative influences that shaped Him. And so you see, God's promise here is to turn every sorrow into joy. Every loss into gain every groan into glory. And he uses all the best things and all the worst things to do that. But here's the thing. This is the next conviction, right? 
the, the beneficiaries of the all-encompassing promise of Romans 8.28 does not include everyone. God makes all things work for the good of those who love him. God makes all things of every kind work for the good, not of just anybody and everybody, but specifically those who love him. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So what does that mean? What does it mean to love God? It's a tricky word especially today. But, but Jesus gives it some substantial meaning, I believe, in, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 38. Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's what it means to love God. This is the great and first commandment. But in order to understand that, we need the second part. Jesus says, and a second, as a second command, is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what Jesus is doing here is he's contrasting two, the two main primary ways that we love. One way to love is what we might call neighbor love, which is essentially the same as self-love. We love our, we're to love our neighbors as we already love ourselves. So how do we love ourselves? That's how we're supposed to love our neighbors. And the way we love ourselves is through, at least this is true for me, we love ourselves through dedicated devotion to meeting our own needs. So to love your neighbor as much or in the same way as you love yourself is to meet your neighbor's needs with the same dedicated devotion you are already giving to meeting your own needs. I know myself well enough to, to know that I'm pretty committed. I am absolutely devoted to meeting my own needs. I seldom will make sacrifices because I want my needs to be met. I'm pretty passionate about it. Self-serving to the core. I, I hardly think twice when it comes to pursuing what I feel I need, often at the expense of those nearest to me. So to love my neighbor, whether that neighbor happens to be my neighbor or whether that neighbor happens to be my wife or my brothers and sisters in my missional community, with the same dedicated devotion I assert to loving myself you know what, that requires nothing short of a miracle. But there's another way to love, and that's to love with all of our heart and soul and mind. That's a different kind of a love. That, that kind of a love has to do with the affections. N neighbor love meets needs. Heart, soul, and mind love is, is much more all-encompassing. And the way that we love God, then, is different than the way we love our neighbors. And that's mainly because, you know what, neighbor love doesn't work with God because God has no needs for us to meet. You don't love God that way, the way you love yourself. It doesn't say, love the Lord your God as you love yourself. 
Acts 17.24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So loving God is way different than neighbor love. Neighbors have needs, just like I have needs. The way we love our neighbors and ourselves is by meeting those needs. Loving God is with heart and soul and mind. The way we love God is the way I love that baked oatmeal that my wife made this morning. It was good. The way we love God is the way I love a grilled ribeye. I don't meet the needs of baked oatmeal, nor do I meet the needs of a ribeye. I love them by imagining them with my mind and the pleasure that I experience when I partake of them. I love them with my soul by desiring the pleasure that I experience when I partake of them. I love them with my heart when I actually feel pleasure in partaking in them. Do you love God this way? Because that's a miracle. It, and not only is it a miracle, it is evidence that God has already been working for your eternal well-being. He did something to you. There is no loving God with heart, soul, mind apart from the miracle work of God's grace. Commenting on Romans 8.28, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, writes, Despisers and haters of God have no lot or part in this privilege, this promise. It is the children's bread. It belongs only to them who love God. So the sweet promise that God overrules all things, every kind of thing, so that they work for good, it's it's not a condition, right? If you love me, well, then I'll do you good. If you don't love me, well, then I'm going to do you harm. It's not like that at all. However, if you are one who finds God to be a joy to you, His greatness and His goodness is sweet to you, that you've had a taste of that, and you enjoy, at least you want to enjoy pleasure in Him, then you can be certain that something has happened in you. Something has been made new. Something divine has taken place. And, and if you find, if you love God with your heart and soul and mind, if you find pleasure in Him or want to, and all that He is for you in Christ Jesus, well, that is the kind of evidence that would support the reality that you have been called effectually by God according to His eternal purpose. And that's, that's our fifth conviction, right? If you've been called by God according to the purpose of His will, then you can be sure with unwavering conviction that He is and He will Work all things of every kind together for your eternal well-being. If you've been called according to His purpose, you can be sure He will cause all things of every kind to be overruled and work together for the good of your joy-filled 
conformity to the, to the image of Jesus. How? <laughs> How can we be filled with such unshakable, unwavering conviction? Romans 8.29 says, For or because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And further, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We, we know that all things, things of every kind, accomplish God's good purpose for us because beginning in eternity past, that's what it means to be foreknown, and extending into eternity future, that's glorification, he is, God is committed every step of the way to bringing his people into glorious conformity to Jesus. What more solid ground can we stand on than the conviction that for those who love God, all things are working together for their good. All things will work together for their good. All things must work together for their good for those who delight in Him and are called according to His purpose. Let's pray. It is our conviction that one of those all things, God, that you use to accomplish your purpose, your good, in the lives of your people. It's, it's your word. That faith, that desire, that delight, that joy, that pleasure that we would experience in you, that comes from hearing and comes from hearing the word. And another one of those all things that you use to accomplish your purpose is the work of the Holy Spirit. Oh God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us now. Bring illumination to these things. That they might, be, they might turn from just being, oh, that's an interesting idea. Let them be governing, controlling convictions for your people. These are, these are not easy times to live in. Oh, but God, there are people in this room who have suffered so greatly, unspeakable things. And I pray that this might be a pillow on which they could lay their weary head. And it might be a medicine to heal their hurting souls. And do this, Lord, so that you are glorified and that we become more and more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.